All right, today I welcome Liz Newsom and John Stone to the podcast. Uh, it's good to see you guys. How's it going? Doing great, John. Thanks. And doing great here in Tucson. John, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Uh, Les, why don't you uh, tell our listeners just about your family, where you live, what you do, and then John, you can do the same after he finishes. Yeah. So um, uh, my name is Les Newsom. I'm originally from Memphis. We've been in Oxford though now for the better part of 20 years. Uh, my wife is Ginger. Uh, we've got three children. I've got two in college at Ole Miss and one who is a freshman in high school. Uh, and uh, we worked with RUF for about 25 years. And in the last two years, uh, have been functioning as the lead pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church here in Oxford. Well, my name is John Stone and uh, married to Marissa uh, for 26 years, 26, yeah, 27 this summer, I think. And uh, we have three daughters. Uh, our oldest is Sarah Stone, who is a nurse in Nashville at St. Thomas Hospital in the neonatal, our uh, wherever babies are intensive care. I think that's the O'Natal. And then my middle daughter is Catherine Stone, and she is the manager of adoptions in, at a uh, animal rescue center, Young Williams in Knoxville, Tennessee. My youngest daughter is Mary Simpson Stone, who actually attends Les Newsom's church when it's open. And she's a sophomore at the University of Mississippi. I am the lead pastor at Catalina Foothills Church in Tucson, Arizona. I have been here for about 18 months, worked for RUF for about 25 years before that. That's me, and I love golf a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, you do. And you've actually, I was thinking, I'm pretty sure, you know, this is our fifth season, and I think you've been on every season of the podcast. And Ooh. so I'm sure our we listeners have. Going for sure. Yeah, yeah, we do. We've got to keep that streak alive. And uh, Les, you're, this is your first time on the podcast, I believe. Yeah, it's glad to be a part. I've been involved in RYM for forever, but I'm glad to be a part of this. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, I know I've known the two of you for a while and I was thinking as you, you've, uh, you're coming on the podcast, you know, I know the two of you go way back, but I was curious, you know, do you both remember when you each met each other, like where you guys were and when that was, I'm sure there's a story there. Yeah. John was the uh, campus minister, uh, at Bellhaven university in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, for my last two years in seminary, but it really wasn't until my last year in seminary when uh, I started uh, working to uh, start the RUF at the University of Memphis. And uh, I walked into the RUF offices there in Jackson, and uh, John was there uh, <clears throat> talking to me about the, um, if I'm not mistaken, John, you were, you were waxing eloquently on the futility of our, uh, of our expense policy. Uh, that we were working under something called impressed accounts that I think you were taking issue with. So yeah, I remember the, the exact day. <laughs> I was taking issue with that. It's ironic less because you're so much better at this than me, but I was also <laughs> talking about how the person who was in charge then didn't use a computer and didn't think we should use computers. And <laughs> um, I mean, it, it was a lot. It was just like, yeah, there's a lot to that. It was a fun discussion. We just kind of hit it off. That reminds me of Michael Scott on The Office when he says, you know, we'll never be a paperless society and tells the students yeah. to write that down and everyone yeah. types it on their computer. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, what time was this? What year are we talking about? That would have been a 1990, summer of 1994, maybe 93, something like that. Okay. So yeah, y'all go way back. 
Well, look, I mean, you've both referenced RUF and many people know you guys as longtime RUF campus ministers. So before we get into kind of the, the meat of the episode, I was curious, just talking about your transition from RUF into both, both of you now lead pastors or senior pastors of, of churches, just, you know, quickly, what's been some of the, the biggest joys of becoming the, the lead pastor of churches and then some of the biggest challenges. Again, we could spend the whole podcast talking about challenges, but just kind of what, what are those things that come to the top of your, your head when I ask you that question, John, you can start us if you want to. That's a great question, John. I, um, I think, I mean, one of the things I would say, John period, and most people can't do this is the best time to take your first head pastorate job is at age 45 years of old or older. I was 53 when I moved here. And so I was just really ready. I don't mean that I'm perfect at what I do or there's nothing to learn, but at 53, you know yourself and you kind of know what you're good at and you know what you're not good at. So I've had a lot of joy just preaching every week. I think that for years I was a little worried, like what do you come up with week after week? And that has not been an issue to this point. It has not been exhausting. I've loved preaching um, it has been a fairly easy task to deal with, uh, to really lead our session in our church. That's been fairly easy. Um, and I just, after working in RUF so long and remember my last 15 years was not on a campus. It was in the, uh, you know, administration. I've enjoyed being loved by a congregation. Hmm. And I think one of the things I regret is that, and this is no one's fault. So I really mean that, but RUF has a little bit in its DNA that local church work can be tough. And I just haven't found that to be true. Work is tough, right? Work is falling, but, sure. and people love you. And I just love being the pastor to these people. I love living life with them. I love living in one place because I traveled before. It's been a pretty radical change and most of it's good. Uh, I, the challenge would be trying to know so many people like you have we have 700 people in our church and that's a pretty tight role. That's an accurate role. And man, you can't know 700 people and it's crazy <laughs> to figure out how to know them and relate to them and not just their names, but anything about their story. So that's been a little bit overwhelming at times, but love it. No regrets. People say, how was it moving to Tucson? I don't know. It's 72 degrees. The grass is green <laughs> all year round and it don't rain. Um, there's a few golf courses out here. <laughs> yes, a few. So yeah, that, that's my answer. Yeah, I, I'd say something real similar to that. I, I I have enjoyed the transition a whole lot more than I thought that I was. I think I probably had a little uh, overactive sense of dread about it. I think in the positive side, the pace of pastoral ministry is so much easier than it is in campus ministry. Um, you live a very frenetic life as a campus minister. I, I do think in the PCA, there's things that are floating out around there being like, well, I wish I could be a RUF minister and only work nine months of the year. And <laughs> just tell those people to call me um, because the transition to local church work means that you've got a much longer period of time to deal with people. Uh, you don't have to get something done in the two weeks before students get back. Mm. Um, so so the, the pace I'm enjoying a lot, my blood pressure is much lower 
uh, since mm. being a part of the church. The biggest I, challenge. I do have to interject at that moment, though, that John Stone nodded his head, I guess you'd say, vehemently, aggressively when you said that. So, just for those who cannot see, John Stone very much approved and agreed with that yeah. statement about the frenetic pace. Sorry to jump in on you. The pace is life giving. Yes, in a very big way. The, the second thing I would say is I, I do think, though, in, in a, when you learn to live, sort of with a family of people for a longer basis of time, you have to, um, you have to be prepared for how many opportunities, opportunities there are for you to lose perspective and let your, um, let your anxieties kind of take you over. Uh, again, you're living with people who have a lot of vested interest and emotions in what church means, what direction is, what leadership we should take at any given moment. And all that does is create a lot of opportunities for you to be anxious and to create anxiousness uh, by reacting to people poorly. Uh, and I feel like even just in the last two years, I've seen examples of myself and peers who, man, the second that you kind of decide to let it go just a little bit, you're in for a, a world of hurt, which means you got to find healthy ways to um, sort of dispel that anxiety, manage that anxiety in your own head, head and heart so it doesn't hijack your whole church. Mm. Look, thank y'all for sharing that. That's that's good to hear. We're going to take just a quick break, but we'll be back to talk to Les and John about ministry and marriage. So stay tuned. Very quickly, just wanted to share our heart at RYM. Um, as you know, we love the local church and we want to serve the local church in reaching and equipping students for Christ. Uh, we know this is a very unusual time for the church and we are striving to produce resources that equip you, equip parents, equip students, and uh, we are praying for you and praying for those uh, churches as they uh, strive uh, to that end. And so uh, please don't hesitate to reach out if there's a way in which we can partner with you and help serve you in ministry. Uh, we are available. Uh, so please visit rym.org. You can find all the contact information for those of us on staff at RYM. But we're praying for you guys and we're here to partner with you in this uh, ministry uh, to the next generation. So here's the rest of the episode with Les and John. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, as I said, this is season five of the podcast, and we're doing kind of a mini season before we get to episode 300. Um, we're almost there, uh, but we are focusing on ministry and marriage, and we're our ministry and relationships rather. And we're looking at a lot of different relational categories. We're looking at marriages. We're looking at dealing with issues with senior pastors, with other support staff. Um, but today we're zooming in a little bit more on marriage. Uh, and so John and Les have bravely entered into to this discussion. And so, look, I, I thought as we begin to discuss marriage, maybe taking the two of you back to your early years of marriage, and uh, as I've kind of phrased this question before, if your older self could kind of sit down in a coffee shop with your younger self or sit down somewhere because less you're not a coffee drinker. Isn't that right? You're not a coffee. Correct. Drinker. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are some kind of obvious marital truths that your younger self is just clueless about that um, you would love to just sit down and say, you know, again, to your younger self, Hey, look, this is obvious now, but I just, you know, was not seeing it. Um, so what, what are some thoughts Les? you want to start us off there? Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I appreciate getting these questions ahead of time, a chance to think about them. I, I do think in looking back at, the, at my younger self uh, when it comes to marriage, I, I don't think I realized uh, how quickly um, 
and I'm going to use the word verdicts, like, like, a, like a courtroom verdict. The verdicts that you pass about your marriage quickly become canonized in your marriage early on. Um, Ginger and I, it wasn't until after we'd been married 15, 20 years or so that we began to realize that we made these little decisions about, quote, the way we were going to do things, or we're just not going to go there, or, well, I'm the kind of person who wants to do A, or you're the kind of person who always does B. Those little verdicts that we passed in our marriage, they became unquestioned assumptions about our marriage that in the, at the time didn't really mess up that much, but when you stretched them out over five, 10, 15 years, uh, just could be really destructive. And, and I wish I could go back and tell my younger self that like, uh, be really careful and be really in community with people more and share some of these things that you're actually talking about, about marriage. I think I had some healthy environments to talk about my marriage, you know, given RUS context and whatnot, but on the whole, that really surprised me. And if I could go back and talk to myself, then I'd say, man, you passed a lot of verdicts about what you are and what you think you are that just weren't true. And same about my wife. Um, so yeah, I don't know. No, that, that's really helpful. And I, I like how you're already kind of getting into community as well there, how important community is in the midst of just, you know, trying to figure this whole marriage thing out. Um, just <laughs> how clueless we are as we enter into and take these vows uh, that we have no idea what we're really kind of getting ourselves into, even if we had premarital counseling, all of that. Um, so now that's, that's good to um, yeah, step into a community. I like how you, you phrase that. Um, just canonizing uh, various verdicts. Uh, that's that's helpful. Well, I, I'll I'll anonymize the the story, but I I can give I can give an example of this very early on. I was talking with an individual uh, years ago uh, who who said something really interesting about their marriage and has they they were going through some counseling, some marriage counseling, and in the midst of the marriage counseling, they both remembered uh, that very early on in their marriage, probably within six months to a year of their marriage, uh, the man had said, "Well, look, um, I always want to have." sex all the time. So like, if we're going to do it at all, it's going to be because you have to initiate talking to his, his wife. <laughs> well, well, there was nobody in his life at that time to look and say, you know what, that might not be such a good idea because it was so personal and you're so inside your own head and marriage, but they lived with 10, 12, 15 years with that verdict being placed over the life that like, Hey, it's really on you wife to be an initiator when it comes to the marriage bed. Um, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about, but I didn't realize we did that all the time when we first got married. Hmm. Now that, that, that is so helpful. I mean, that just carries into to parenting too. I mean, each of our households take on these, you know, quote unquote truths that we just kind of cling to. And it's just, it's helpful to have other people to speak into those. Um, so now that's, that's a helpful example. John, what, what are some thoughts you have? Um, you know, I, you know, John, I read these questions ahead of time. Thank you. And it helped, but I, I, this one is a little harder for me. There's a lot of things I would tell myself if I could go back and sit with me. And I think they, um, I, I just think, and this is, if you know me, one of my big themes, I wish Marissa and I had done more counseling with a professional earlier in our marriage. You just cannot, you know, the way Les says it's true, but it's just almost impossible to have communication that works between men and women who are married. I, you know, I, I thought I understood people. I, I certainly didn't understand my wife very well. And it's taken a long time to do that. I just think that I was incredibly arrogant. And 
I just thought marriage would be easy. It was the thing to do. I mean, I love Marissa to death. I don't mean that I didn't love her, but I just, I don't know, John, that I had any right assumptions. And I, if I were to go back, I would just say to myself, everything you're thinking is wrong. Sexual fulfillment in the way that you believe it to be, John, is not possible. Intimacy, like just, you know, um, you know, relational intimacy as you think it exists is impossible, John Stone. Um, and headship in the way you conceive of it is ridiculous. And so those would be the things that I would look at myself and say, I've just done a lot of damage to my wife through the years because, and I, I don't, you know, no amount of premarital counseling or teaching could have helped me. Some of this is just the way life is, but mm-hmm. just wrong about so much. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sorry to laugh a little bit when you just said everything I thought was wrong. Um, but, but it's so true. I mean, we're, we are just, so, so clueless. And so I'm just thinking, you know, people listening, if there are people who are <clears throat> about to get married or just recently married, I mean, just if we could maybe sum it up in a word, just humility, um, just realizing you don't, you don't know what you're entering into and, and to be humble about it. And as you know, the cliched phrases come up, we begin to see our brokenness so much more uh, when we're, when we're married and it is, it's cliched cause it's so true. Um, so look, as we're <clears throat> taking, you know, going back, thinking about when, when you both were, were recently married, which by the way, how old were the two of you when you both got married? I believe I was 28. Exactly the same. I was 28 also. Okay. And then now thinking a little bit about ministry and as you started out in ministry, how old were the two of you as you, you got into ministry? Was this right after marriage? I actually got in it before I, I was single for the first year. I was, I was single in seminary. And then we got married after my first year at Bellhaven as a campus minister. Yeah, I was about the same. I got started single and um, uh, got married two years into ministry. All right. And and so kind of thinking back uh, to, to early uh, years of, of ministry, just similar question. What, what were some of those things that you were naive to about ministry that you'd like to kind of sit your younger self down and, and talk to? Les, do you want to start us off on this one? Yeah, <clears throat> I, I would say, uh, again, going back and talking to yourself, I, I, I would try to say something to myself about how it really takes you a long time to know yourself. Um, and it's a process that really can't be rushed. Uh, your personality is a big deal. Your disposition is a big deal. Your preaching voice is a big deal. Your management instincts, like that kind of... Um, Figuring, figuring out who you are is just not a quick and easy process. Um, and oftentimes it comes through mistakes and pain and shame and fear. Um, but I, you think that you know, which I think early on you tend to sort of lock in to say, well, I found a set of doctrinal truths that are true. And so, hey, I'm a minister. And the answer is yes, yes. But that ministry has to be embodied in this very complex, very convoluted, very sinful but also redeemed thing that we call you. <laughs> and I didn't know me. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't realize that a lot of things that I called ministry was nothing more than a projection of my own personality, quirks and faults um, sort of mashed upon the lives of other people. Um, yeah, but I, there were some people that pulled up the reins on me and slowed me down a little bit, but I, I definitely could have used a lot of wisdom in that regard. Hmm. 
And just to zoom in on that a little bit more, that's, that's so good. But when you say, you know, it takes a long time to know yourself and you kind of said, and that really can't be rushed. Can you kind of zoom in on kind of that aspect of this cannot be rushed and and what you mean by that? Just kind of fleshing that out a little bit more. You know, uh, this is, this is the old John Newton quote. um, Experience is God's school. And without that experience, you're not going to be able to confront your, your, your mistakes to confront your, your failures to confront. Um, I was talking to somebody just the other day who had a ministry situation where someone who'd been in their ministry for about two years uh, just walked away from it and even said on the other side of it, how unhelpful that person's ministry was to them. <laughs> you know, it, it was what we call a loss in ministry. Somebody that you poured time into, you gave them the best of the truth and everything else. And they were like, thank you. No, thanks. And they walk away from your ministry or your church or whatever. And um, that, that stuff just has to happen to you because what comes out of you in the midst of that will oftentimes be the way in which you manage your own anxiety. I keep talking about this. I'm going to keep pushing on it. I do think that the key to long lasting ministry is learning to manage your own anxiety but you don't know what your anxieties are until they've been threatened. And only time and experience brings you those threatening experiences. You think you're going to get fired. Half your church leaves. Um, you know, a, a global pandemic comes along and you know, threatens the finances of your church or threatens to you know, cancel your ministry. Only when you face that anxiety does the stuff come out of you that you've got to know in order to be able to contextualize how you're, how you're ministering to people. It's a, it's a, you're learning your own self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you said you're going to continue to bring up the kind of theme of manager anxiety. Do you, do you want to talk just a little bit more about what you, you mean by that? Well, I mean, I, I think every turn in ministry is an opportunity to freak out. Um, someone hurt my feelings. Someone didn't respond to me in the way in which I wanted them to. Um, I had a judgment call that I wanted to make that, you know, ruling elder offended me that parent, uh, from my youth group, um, crossed my will. And again, I've got to know what it means to be healthy when I respond to that coming up outside of me. And I've got to know what's unhealthy. Um, it's healthy for me to stay calm. It's healthy for me to go to that person, uh, in, in a, in in a spirit of calm and ask them for wisdom. Uh, it's healthy for me to confront well, uh, without it being out of spite or bitterness or matching their level of animosity. It's unhealthy for me to go grab a friend, you know, the other elder who I know does like me and say, don't you think that guy's kind of an idiot? I mean, let me tell you what he said to me. Gossiping is a bad way of handling it. Um, um, yeah, I mean, there's a long list of ways that you've got to figure out in ministry uh, that, that raise the level of anxiety. Oh, here's another one. When I withdraw from my church, you know, a lot of pastors are like, dealing with real people is unsafe. But I tell you what's safe is me sitting behind my computer where I can type up another passive aggressive sermon that lets these people have it, you know, next week uh, for the ways in which they offended me. So now I've got my only tool in my toolbox, which is my, my heavy duty reform theology. And I'm going to beat the heck out of people with it um, next week. And again, people are not being ministered to in that regard. Mm, now that, that's such a good point. I mean, that's so true. And, and how you can project your insecurities onto other people and just the paranoia that can manifest itself and, and all of that in ministry. That's, that's good. John, what, what are some thoughts you have on this? Well, I would say, I'm going to follow up on what Les said. I just actually texted you a YouTube video, John Perry. You might want to link under the, um, under, you know, how you can link stuff in these podcasts. But Les and I have both been pretty influenced by the Bowen family system. And I think that 
if I could go back to my young self, and this will tie into what Les said, is I would look at myself and say, there are two things that you are not thinking about today that you must think about. And number one is leadership. Uh, Genesis says that God created things and we're all creators. So either create, we are leading whether we mean to or not. And as a young, pretty reformed dude, I looked at people who talked a lot about leadership. Um, I look, I thought they were unfaithful, not to the gospel exactly, but it was a waste of time. And leadership is everything. It's just, and, and you can be an introvert and be a leader. You can be an extrovert and be a leader, but you have to think about leadership or you just will create anxiety and you won't manage anxiety well because everybody's triangulated. Like John, you and your wife are set against your children. Sometimes you and your children are set against your wife sometimes. And so understanding that triangulation, understanding that anxiety is a big deal. So I would look at myself and say leadership is a big deal. And the second one I think will surprise you, but this is what I'd say. Great ministers absolutely learn to throw great parties. <laughs> the ministry is about being social. It is not about preaching and teaching. That is, I, what I, I, what, here's what I mean because I get so accused of over, say, I've seen great teachers who can't do ministry. I've seen great preachers who can't do ministry because they don't understand the social dynamic of people's lives, especially in the West. And in America, you know, I'll give you an example. John Sartell at IPC for years and years was a good, maybe a great preacher. I didn't hear him a lot. The few times I heard him, he was pretty good. But tell you what John Sartell was really good at, playing golf with people, going fishing with people, having dinner with people. People love to be with John. Brian Habig is an introvert, and yet people love to be with him. So it's, this is not an introvert-extrovert thing, but you've got to learn that ministry is a, it's about how society works socially. It is not about just the right theology. So I'd go back in and say to myself, you don't understand that leadership's important, and you don't understand that you, you need to understand what frat guys understand, how to do rush, how to recruit how to think about the way a party feels, how to have the right food there. And great churches are actually a great party, even if they're real serious churches. I'm not into really having a serious church, but people want to be there because it understands them. And I think that bad leadership and bad young pastors are like, well, I understand the Bible. I understand Jesus, and that's enough. No, it's not. Um, and I think Les and I were really confronted by this a lot in RUF when you would see people um, – who were really got A pluses at Covenant or RTS or Westminster and just fell flat on their face on campus because they couldn't gather two people. Hmm. And they knew how to read books, you had to write papers. They were, I mean, they were smart, but they couldn't do ministry because ministry is more than that. It's not, it's not less than that, but it is more than that. Yeah, John, no, you, you're totally right. The second one did catch me off guard, but that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. You make a strong case. So, Les, you want to react to that? Kind of those two broad categories, leadership, and then throwing great parties. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. You know, I'll use different language for it. I think that the, the leadership question, I think, has a lot to do with knowing yourself. That's kind of what I was referring to earlier, that, you know, leadership means taking people where we all know they need to go, uh, and then knowing who I am as a leader to be able to do that. Some of that is letting go of the things that you realize you're never going to be able to do well yourself because you just got natural limitations. Um, 
uh, and that mean are, are doing some compensating for those kind of pers personality quirks. But that leadership is, is trying to challenge us with the, the party thing. <laughs> I think it's a better way of talking about what, you know, probably 15 years ago, we used to say was a grace centered ministry. Um, it's a better way of talking about it because it really is saying if there's not celebration at the heart of our ministry, somewhere along we've misinterpreted our theology uh, because that is the direction of the Bible, that all of human history is heading, uh, biblically speaking, towards a great celebration of being intimate, close, profoundly connected to the God of the universe. So how can I do ministry in the midst of that if that, if that anticipation is not about drawing people together in vital community that uh, um, is celebratory? and trying to create celebration. But it's so contrary to people's instincts when they come into your church. Lots of people came to their church because they're like, well, I wanna make sure my kid doesn't grow up screwed up, so he needs some Bible, hey, smack him around, don't, don't be afraid there, preacher. <laughs> Secondly, you get people walk out of church service, they're like, man, that was a great sermon. I mean, you just, you smacked me up against the wall. In other words, it's only a great sermon for how awful you feel. Don't get me wrong. That's some, there's appropriate times in which the Spirit of God brings me to my knees. But if that's where that ends, we can't define that as spirituality. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a theology of glorification that's got to be in our pattern of ministry that says, I want people to learn to celebrate because it's not natural. Hmm. And I would just say, John, being in the Reformed community, you have a lot of Reformed folks for, for many good reasons, looking at mega churches or some of these church churches that said they weren't denominations became denominations. But if you look at how they gathered people, they understood that the point was gathering people. Like the early Christians met in the temple where people were. They did the things that people were used to doing. Reformed churches often pride themselves on doing the very opposite of what normal people do. And just look at the large churches in our denomination. I'm not saying a small church is bad and a large church is good. They tend to understand how culture works. There's a way to operate in a culture in a way that people feel comfortable without compromising. But I, I would just also say God brought a group of slaves out of a country. They didn't have a Bible. They had literally been slaves. They had never owned property. They had never had a day off. They had probably been forcibly separated by their captors. This is the first time they had a family. And he said, here's the two things I want you to do. I want you to take one in seven days off, and I want you to have seven week-long festivals a year where you literally overdrink and overeat. There's no other way to read it. They are to bring out all the wine and all the food and drink for a week. So if God said to his people, there should be seven festivals that you do every year, then why are our churches so uncelebratory? And, and part of that is, again, um, I mean, here's a stat for you. The Greek systems of all these universities produce far more leaders than the rest of the, by percentage, than the rest of the campus put together. So if you have a 30% Greek population or a 15% Greek population, if you trace your graduates at every school, they produce tons more leaders culturally than the rest of the student body put together. But as we, as we go to school next to them, John, and they're drinking, they're doing immoral things, but there's something about their understanding of people that ultimately, and a lot of guys go out and they're like, I regret my whole fraternity thing, but they're leaders. But 
some of them are introverts, some are extroverts, but they understand that people need celebration. Um, there's a way to have repentance and resurrection simultaneously. And I, how, I know that my words make you uncomfortable. Knowing how to throw a party is probably what most pastors who we look at and long for them to have more don't want to get their head around. So, for instance, this means you have to hire people different than you. Like I had to hire one introvert who likes to do work, but I also had to hire a big extrovert who only wants to throw a party all the time. This determines how you put your staff together. If you're the party thrower, you better hire an administrator. I mean, again, understanding yourself and understanding and stop. I'm going to go back to the first question. I would go back to my young self and go, all of your mocking of megachurches is absolutely prideful and stupid. Go study. Mm-hmm. Go study them. John, let's be honest about RYM. We moved it to a beach. We put a dance party in it. We stopped singing at a piano with a hymn book. And, huh, thousands of people started coming because it went from something that people weren't used to to something people understood. I could go on about this forever. I'm sorry. No, this is this is helpful. Uh, no, that a lot of good points. I mean, just the celebratory nature of of the gospel and throughout Scripture. It's no, an excellent point. Les, I was going to move us on. Was there anything else you wanted to react to before we move on? You're good. Um, so look, you know, as we're, we're we're talking about so many relational aspects to ministry in this fifth season. You know, zooming in on marriage because that's such a, a you know, a vital institution that God himself uh, created. But I know many say that oftentimes this is where Satan's going to attack us, uh, that he's going to attack those in ministry through their marriages. And so maybe thinking of some of those kind of common ways uh, that the two of you have seen ministers neglect their marriage. Um, just thinking through that a little bit and, and what what you all have seen, and this is not like, you know, the end all be all list, but but some of those patterns and, and ways in you've, which you've seen others neglect their marriage. Who wants to start us off on that? <laughs> okay, John's got it. Um, this is a hard question, John. I, I'm going to throw out a couple of strange ones. I, I think the first thing I'd say the way men or women neglect their marriage uh, in ministry is they don't both feel called to ministry. So less than I faced, not a lot, but a few couples in RUF that we had to manage where the husband felt strongly he should be in ministry and the wife felt strongly she should not be in ministry. And the advice I give to young men now when they face that is they should not be in ministry. Hmm. I don't mean by that that a wife has to have this sort of role as first lady of the church and lead the wick and you know she has to be a public teacher too. But the nature of church life where you work on Sunday and there are several nights a week where you're out and where people need to tell you secrets and where you've got to be somewhat hospitable in your home. You just have to. Just means even if she's working outside the home, she's got to be all in on you doing it and her being one with you. And I think this is actually increasingly difficult in our culture because and I raised three daughters and I kind of raised them this way. I want you to get your own job. I want you to have an education. I don't want you to depend on a man. I mean, I'd love if they got married, John, but like be prepared to take care of yourself because 60% of all marriages fail. And I have all these women in my church who are, who are divorced and having to pay for themselves. And so when you're sending your daughters to school and it's costing you 40, 50, $60,000 a year or $200,000 for four years. And, and those women are now in environments that talk about, 
equality in all the good ways and bad ways, it's hard to then go, I'm going to just follow him, whatever he does, and go into this really odd job. So the first thing I'd say is you neglect your marriage when you're both not on the same page. And I mean, I can show you bad Presbyterian divorce after bad Presbyterian divorce. When you interviewed him, and this happened to be, she said, I told him I didn't want to do this. Um, And that's just a big deal. I, I think the second thing I would say to pastors listening is, your marriage isn't different than anybody else's. Like, this is a very good question, John, but like marriage is hard, period. <laughs> and being in a church work doesn't make it worse or better. Like, it's not the ministry that puts pressure on it. Um, you know, we just have been doing a Bible study until the pandemic started on marriage. And I mean, I just, as people flood into my office and talk about it, marriage is hard. It's hard. It's almost impossible. And I think that ministers probably feel too much guilt about having a, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes here on the radio, having a good, healthy example of marriage. A good, health, healthy example of marriage is just one that made it, period. <laughs> you, just, you just made it. You didn't get divorced. That's a good marriage. Lower that and bar, baby. <laughs> there will be seasons of good sexual expression, and there'll be seasons of no sexual expression. There'll be seasons of communication and there'll be seasons that won't, but raising kids in this culture with sports mania and so many things. And when pornography has reigned and ruined all of us men and now women on what we think sex could be. And when we've got to work all 60 hours a week and not have good health, like marriage is hard. And the way you don't neglect it is you just, get a friend, you get a counselor, and you talk about it, and you survive. I don't think in the PCA we talk enough about just survive the thing. I don't mean personally. I mean together. It doesn't work. And the Bible tells you it doesn't work. You're falling. Marriage was the occasion of the fall, right? <laughs> Marriage caused the fall. It's like, like we have secrets. <laughs> I would just say, get over trying to have a perfect marriage. You can preach about marriage when yours is terrible. And you always will survive and get some help and just realize that I'm back to my young self. Like you think this is going to be good and beautiful and this is going to be hard and sanctifying and man, survive. That's my word, John. Yeah, that's, that's a good word. And uh, Les, that's a tough act to follow. You want to, you want to react? Oh, to I know. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love that. I love the way that's put about like, you know, he feels like he's called and she feels like they're not. One of the ways in which that manifests itself is how a young minister will uh, over-spiritualize their wives. And let's say you have a wife who's not brave enough to look at their husband and say, yeah, I'm not called to this. This is your thing. It's not my thing. What she does is, is she acquiesces. But what she acquiesces, the reason why she acquiesces is because, well, this is the ministry. This is God talking. So whenever my husband says he's speaking with the authority of the Bible to, uh, to me, and so therefore I have, to, I have to follow it. So what happens is I see a lot of guys will come out of early ministry opportunities and they'll place, I mean, some huge burdens on their spouses, all because that's the biblical way that we do it um, without any consideration for the constitution of their spouse who may or may not be very good at this. Like, my wife, Ginger, would rather you beat her upside the head and neck than ever get up in front and teach a Bible study, okay? 
And I, that's true for Marissa too. Marissa does not ever want to stand up front and teach. That's true. Oh, she would rather shoot me in the head. She don't want to do it. Now you put her in the room after church though. And she does this, this Mississippi art. That's it, the word is spelled V I Z T I N Viston. She's working the room Viston with these people. Oh, well, I just went back and visited with the Smiths and that kind of thing. And here's the crazy thing. People come to my church and like, that was one of the friendliest places I've been to. Well, it's because my wife is out there doing what she is good at doing. Um, and those marriages early on, you, you also hand them something that's impossible, which is trying to parent preschool age children um, uh, uh, ever, but, but by themselves. You know, Stone, I think you're the first one to talk to me about this was, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, it would have been very normal to have multiple generations of women living under the same roof, right? So you would have some kind of relief to be able to go to Dedgum Walmart or something for five minutes uh, without having to haul your kids around in some minivan and make your life miserable and terrible. And so I, to me, I think we foisted something upon ourselves culturally. It's almost an unworkable situation for modern wives. And when a guy comes in and brings the, the heavy hammer of ministry in hand, there's no way for a woman to, to weasel out from under that. And, and let me jump on the back of that and say, I think, John, the other two pressures to be sensitive of is many churches are harsh on their pastor. I'm not in one of those situations, but your wife has to develop a thick skin and she hears people talk about her husband's preaching or the mistake he made. And that's not easy for anybody. She loves him. And she, she's laying down her life for him. And I don't know what you do, but it happens in RUF. It happens in youth ministry. Good grief. Youth ministers get torpedoed. Um, it happens to head pastors, associate pastors by parents. And you know, you just got to have a thick skin. You got to get over caring about what other people think. I mean, you've got to be able to listen to their, you know, they're telling you, you ran that youth event wrong and they're probably right, but you've got to quit internalizing that so much. And I think the other factor is ministers are just deeply underpaid, deeply underpaid. And so especially like in PCA circles, we won't, we're going to a church with 12 doctors, five professors, 10 entrepreneurs. They all make 450, Pardon me. I'm drinking coffee and I did work a little bit. I'm yeah. so sorry. Um, <laughs> they're making so much money and they want to pay you $82,000. Well, you know, USA Today before the pandemic ran an article that said a family in the United States in any suburb where public schools are accessible, the poverty level is $84,000. Like, because of healthcare costs, because you need vehicles today. So you're gonna put a man and a woman in a situation where they're highly criticized by people who have never done the job, not criticized by other youth pastors or pastors, but criticized by people who don't know how to do the job, and you're gonna underpay them, there's gonna be some failure, John. And I, I, again, I think that this, I think a bigger one, I think y'all should think about doing a podcast on what it means to be one flesh. The thing that I most appreciate about Marissa is someday she hates my gut, but she's always with me. She just has my back. And boy, in ministry, that is a humongous deal. Um, yeah. So sorry to jump in and answer twice. No, <laughs> no apology necessary. Look, and I don't want to open up a can of worms here. Um, but you're going to. So just open right here. He's now turning the top of that thing off and the worms are open. Go, John. <laughs> um, but reversing the scenario, 
and thinking about if you guys can speak to, okay, what if, you know, the, the women are the ones in ministry and the, the men are not, you know, whatever, you know, what way in which they're serving, if that's in, in youth ministry, if that's WIC and then other denominations, I know think differently. So again, this is where I'm trying to keep the worms in the can, but can, can the two of you answer that of thinking of, okay, some of the, the struggles when, when the roles are reversed here and it's the woman that's in, in ministry. Yeah, the first thing I'd say to that, John, is I think there's an unfair double standard. I think that when women are head pastors or head youth pastors, or there isn't an expectation that their husband be there. And this is crazy because in these circles where, and I don't, I am not in a circle where we ordain women to ministry, but in the circles where they do, it's not totally fair. It can be a little more liberal, but like they have no expectation that the husband should have a job also. And so it's interesting that. Uh, and I know several women in ministry in this capacity, their husbands don't get criticized the way that wives get. There's a double standard there. But I do think the same things apply. That husband has to have her back. There's going to be criticism. There's going to be, you know, especially in youth ministry or women's ministry, get called in front of the pastor because one elder's wife is mad, but really the women in general, like learning how to, Learning how to hear the criticism both for yourself and for your spouse, who in this case would be is your is your wife. Learning when it's legitimate and not legitimate, those are just skills. This goes back to Les's point. It just takes a long time to do that. But I think you, oneness in ministry is the place that it it's for both a man and a woman as the lead pastor or lead youth pastor is important. You don't need oneness in a banker. <laughs> he just runs a bank. I mean, he needs it for himself. But nobody knows if his wife supports him. It's not obvious. It's just a different deal in ministry. I'm interested in Les's question here. No, I don't think that's funny. I, every <laughs> This is one of the reasons why when you talk about, <clears throat> you know, God forbid if I lost my job, what would I go do? And there's certain jobs that you pine after. <clears throat> in Oxford, Mississippi, it's the Home Depot. You drive past that place and you're kind of like, man, what it must be like to work in Home Depot. Somebody walks up to you and is kind of like, hey, where are the plungers? And you're like, aisle 18. And that's a closed loop, right? My job was done <laughs> in that very moment. And the crazy thing is, is I don't drive home thinking to myself, oh, man, did I care for that guy? I mean, honestly, was I really as gentle with him as I should have been? That's the kind of crap that makes you neurotic in ministry, mm -hmm where you start longing for a job that's, that's more tangible, you know, that's got some sort of handholds on it where you can actually judge, did I do my job today or did I not? Hmm. Yeah. That's helpful. And, and look, kind of transitioning from this as we think about, okay, neglecting marriages and ministry to thinking about maybe the other end of the spectrum, neglecting those who are unmarried. Um, just thinking about, you know, how does the church often uh, neglect those who are, who are unmarried. I mean, oftentimes there are plenty of single people. I mean, John, I think you said you, you started off in ministry uh, single, uh, bef you know, before seminary, all that. And so just, yeah, ways in which the church, you know, in so many ways, uh, obviously we need to be stewarding our marriages. We need to be stewarding our family, but as plenty of people have pointed out, you know, those can quickly become idols. And sometimes that idol um, is manifested in just neglecting those who, who are not in marriage. Uh, so speak to us on that. What, what are some thoughts there? I don't know if Les, you want to start us off there? Yeah, I, I, mine's mostly pragmatic. I, I do think that um, 
your individual time with your people is the driver of your sermons. And I, I, I found this happening in the last two years already. It is, it is way too easy to do applications and sermons to marriage and to family and to parenting and to children. If I'm not having one-on-ones with single people in my church, I'm not going to mention single people's issues in my preaching. Hmm. Um, and because you got to sit down and listen, realize like, this is what loneliness looks like. Um, here's what program looks. Cause you know, when you leave college and, and you head out into the world, it's such a shock how, how, how much relationship requires initiative taking. Does that make sense? That there's a sense in which you got RUF, you've got, you know, your classes with different people, you've got your fraternity sorority, you've got your job, you've got these places where you go where, where relationships seem relatively natural. But once you're kind of thrown out, you now take a job that you, I don't know, you kind of like, but it makes decent money, so I'll stick with it. Where do I find community? And they're just lost and lonely as they can be. And they just waltz into some bad habits, um, spending too much time alone, spending too much bad time. Yeah, I, but, but I got to sit and meet with those people before I know that those issues are, exist. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point, just being with them. And, and, and again, just the importance of presence in ministry. And I know that's been talked about so much during this time when we're all dealing with a pandemic and we cannot be in people's midst. But just being present, being around those people and the, the thoughts, the application, all of those things will come. So that's a, that's a great point. John? Um, really what Les said, I mean, your one-on-ones, if you're not preaching through your one-on-ones, you're probably not preaching well because you don't really know what people are thinking until you listen to them. I think the single, I'd say two things about ministering to singles. We have a number of singles because our congregation, half our congregation is very old and their spouses have died. And we have sort of both with younger singles and older Caesars gone against the grain and, and sort of grouped them together. So it's a little hard to look at, uh, to look at both singles and young families having three kids and say, I want you all to get together and not talk about the issues you're facing, but they're often facing different issues. I think part of leadership is saying, what are the groups that can maturely um, integrate singles into their home group or community group or Sunday school and really engage them and, and be with them and try to understand them and which groups can. So if you've got a community group with six families and they all have three kids under 10 years of age, they're going to struggle with a sing- unless the single person is tough and can go in there and force friendship with those wives, because they're going to talk about what are you doing about discipline? Why is your boy different than your girl? Like, you know, it's, do y'all like upward basketball? Do you? And I can't look at people and go, okay, stop all the normal communication and and uh, talk about what this person, like, because you really don't remember, John. And that's not an excuse. So I think you have to shepherd your church well, because there are people that can deal with singles better than others. There just are. And so you have to be strategic. Um, we have a singles, little singles ministry going, and we just separate it into older and younger and like the younger singles love going out. Like they go out at nine o'clock on Friday night. So, I mean, and they literally went to a movie and they had drinks afterwards and they went home. Every other person in my church was asleep. And I just say, like, I, once I sort of, I've really tried to speak to them and said, look, you're just different than us. Like we go to bed at eight 30. We're not proud of that. So I just think you have to acknowledge and, and 
like some of this can be like, we should have multi-generational ministry. Let me tell you the hardest community groups to join in my church are the ones populated by people 65 years of age and older. Um, they come from a different time, a different culture. They are really strong Christians. They'll love your socks off, but they'll never talk about what even a 54-year-old wants to talk about. And so I just think you got to be honest and shepherd people to places intentionally where people can care for them. And you got to be really thoughtful about that because you can't just go, we have the gospel. We're all sinners. You can just join a community group. Young moms with three kids, they can't get their hair combed, much less engage a single man or woman in their loneliness. Um, and so that is not, like, that's not an excuse. Both of those people are dying, the single person and the mom, but I wouldn't try to partner them up. Are there some exceptions? Of course, but generally I think it's a programmatic, strategic, careful decision you have to make. I, I want to go back to what Les said. You have to address singleness in your sermons. You just do. Um, and that's just important. Uh, absolutely. Cause yeah, I mean, what you're doing there, you're, you're not only just talking to the single person in your congregation, but you're training your entire congregation to, to be aware, look, these people are in our midst and we cannot ignore them in, in our conversation and our, you know, meals in the home, all that, uh, to just keep those people on, on the radar. Um, because yeah, I know oftentimes, uh, there can seem to be some neglect there in our churches. Um, look, Les, John, I know we're needing to close this out before too long. I thought we could end with the two of you just sharing some maybe rhythms and practices uh, that have been helpful in your marriage. Um, I know survival is just kind of maybe the way you might summarize it, John, just surviving it, right? Um, but I can, do be- I can do better on this question. Yeah. Parent, I'm only going to push at you on this and saying that when we make the baseline for certain activities in this world thriving, we've probably created an unattainable law. So I'm really pushing it. Hey, your marriage can thrive. Well, what does that mean? I think that would be a good podcast because surviving it feels like at times thriving, but I I'll jump in since I'm already talking and tell you some of the rhythms. I think we really held to is um, we really protected family vacations and I've really been pretty much not the normal minister that I'm not going to come back for the death of someone who was probably going to die an older person that I might love. I'm really even in RUF was careful that we went away that I turned off email and phones my wife and I always did a trip, just us together. Even when we had little children, it was very hard to do that, to say we got married for us to be together. Let's go off. Let's go to New York. Let's go to New Orleans. Let's just us do something. We did that every year. We were not good at date night. I, I probably, if you said, John, what's something you should have done better? We struggled to have a night, and that's the night we went out. And the few times we did it, we, both, we would go eat at 6 o'clock intending to go to a movie. And then my wife would say, you know, the babysitters already put the kids to bed, so we'd go home and watch the show, which was healthy. Um, but, I, you know, healthy I think healthy rhythms are just being normal. Like, I take a day off. My church has applauded me. My elders have applauded me. 
I'm unattainable on Fridays. I just am. The pandemic's affecting that a little bit, but like I'm going to play golf. I'm going to eat Mexican food. I'm going to go to the movies or something with Marissa that night or with my girls. And I'm not, not taking that day off. And so, uh, I mean, those are just some of the things I did. I, as when my kids were young, I made sure that my wife once a week had a babysitter for half a day in the morning so she could get her hair done, go have lunch with a friend, and she didn't provide the babysitting. I did. I called it. I got it. Once we got it going, she could do it. But it was, it was just to say, hey, I want you to be healthy. I want you to have time away. Um, and we were both really good at exercising, John. I mean, I think in this pandemic, I'm worried about people stopping exercising. Mm. Eating too many chips, watching Netflix. Like, I, you know, I exercised this morning, halfway through the exercise, I'm like, man, I don't feel as depressed. Like, I'm just moving those, you know, those chemicals around and making myself feel better. And I was always six feet away from people when I was exercising. <laughs> I was going to ask you, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think those are as good a rhythms as I can... Give you, the nice thing about RUF, you know, less than I didn't really raise kids. What we can't speak to is raising kids as a pastor in a church. Because our kids think RUF is the greatest thing ever. You're to beat once a year. College students come over and play with you. You have meals. So our kids did not, I don't know what rhythms I would tell a pastor to give for his kids. Because I can tell you, empty nesting and taking a head pastor in Tucson is literally the greatest decision any human being could ever, ever make in their life. <laughs> my wife and I are often at 7.30 in the evening going, what are we going to do? <laughs> and we've just been dropped off by people who took us out and bought our meal. And we're like, my sermon's kind of like, it's crazy, John. So <laughs> some of what I'm learning isn't that transferable to the really great 39-year-old planting his first church because his rhythms are real different than mine. No, but I mean, that, that is good. I mean, taking a day off consistently. Um, I mean, that is, that's huge. Exercising consistently, that, that is huge. Um, so, so Les, I know we're, again, we're needing to close out. What, what are some thoughts on rhythms yeah, I, that have been helpful? You're probably asking the wrong person. I, I've always been a little suspect of anybody who comes to me and is kind of like, Les, could you give us a couple of marriage techniques to really kind of, you know, <laughs> I, mostly because I, we're so bad at that. My, Ginger's a nine on the Enneagram. I'm a three and I, we, we're both youngest children. I think that's probably the bigger dynamic. And as youngest children of three, we're always just kind of like, I don't know, whatever. Um, and so we weren't really good about patterns. We weren't good about date night either. Frankly, we hadn't done that well at vacation either. But I'll say this. We, we were having this conversation two nights ago because my entire family's, you know, girls are back from school. Everybody's back here. We were having this conversation as a family. And it, it was my middle daughter that was kind of like, I don't know. I'm okay being at home. Because uh, my, my people here are normal and fun, and people like to be with. And I realize that's not true for every home. There's some times in which children want to differentiate more. I'm not trying to create any kind of standard, but I do think that there was a decision Ginger and I made in parenting very early on that I think has brought a lot of blessing. Where I think we said to ourselves, like, you know, I want to be very careful not to sort of set the focal point of my parenting, or even Ginger and I's relationship, for that matter, on. Um, the fears that we have of what might happen to us if we don't do this thing. I'm not saying there's not stuff that you don't need to fear. I just think we've early on to said, you know, let's say our kids end up off the deep end, morally speaking, by the time they're 18, 20 years old. What would I want in that time? 
if that happened, God forbid? And the answer is, I just want to be in the game. <laughs> I want to know what my children think. I want to know what they like. I want, to, I want them to play their music during dinner so I can know what their music is. I want to watch movies together with them. I want to consume their pop culture so that we can have that thing to talk about. We just want it to be alongside and in our children's life. And weirdly, I think they kind of like being, they like the fact that we honored them by saying, we want to find out what you're into. But I don't know. That could be completely no, wrong. There's plenty of time for them to get screwed up. I don't know. I, no, I want to commend Les because Les's house was fun. So I want some of you are going to struggle with some of what we said on this podcast. And I want you to think about that son in the far country. That son woke up and said, my, serv- my dad's servants are fed better than me. I'm going home. And when his father saw him, he pulled out the Nintendo and threw a party for that son that the son wanted. And I don't know a lot of parents that would bring their arrested child or their drug addicted child or their child that's just gotten pregnant or someone pregnant at home and throw a party for them. And I, I say this because some of you do homeschool and you should, and that's great. But if your home is not marked, whether you go to homeschool, public school, by a place that your kids like, you're not parenting well. And I don't say that phrase very often. The thing that you want to create for your children is memories. That's why we love Dollywood. When our kids think about summer and Christmas, we we went to Dollywood and had fun. And not, not, hey, I want you to academically excel. Of course we want our kids to excel. Not, you've got it. let's go, let's go work on that swing one more time or that. Let's go learn to throw the ball. No, let's have fun. Let's watch movies. Let's people play are talking v- about parenting all the time. John, do you agree that people, it's almost as if all parenting, the conversation's always begun by the person who's wanting to talk about parenting by negation. What do yeah. we not do? We know we don't allow devices at the table. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a television in our bedroom. Uh, we turn the thing on. It's always by negation. Like, okay, 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 okay. I'm not denying that they need to be there, but if that's the only thing your kids got, no wonder they don't want to be around your house. No, no, no wonder they don't want to be around you. So I had a dad text me and say, what do I do to get my son off of, um, oh, what's the game everybody's playing? You know, Fortnite. Fortnite, thank you. I said, you don't get him off it. You play it with him. And he and I had a 40-minute exchange. I said, you need to trust me. Play Fortnite with your son. Dad texted me back three weeks later and said, you have changed my relationship with my son. Hmm. My son is playing it less. I enjoy it. We're talking more. So Jesus, the, the basis of ministry is incarnation. It's Jesus becoming like us, not us becoming like him. Yes, he makes us like him. So parents need to learn how children think. And I would say not only is it negation less, often we're only trying to impose adult standards on children. We, especially when you get around private schools and people who take you know, schooling so seriously, we're trying to make them adults too quickly when we need to be having fun with our kids. I know we're, I don't care that we're over time, um, but I, you know, I, I just want to piggyback on this. I forgot what question we're exactly addressing. Sorry. About that. <laughs> I feel like we're just getting started. Um, so I wish we could uh, keep going. I love how we came full circle back to partying. Um, that's, that's the way to, to end that. But I will say, I know John Nielsen who wrote the book of faith that lasts. I mean, he talks about, you know, he's, he's looking at the the reality that some, students who grew up in the church or have now, you know, left the church as they go off to college. And he said, you know, one of the factors that he's discovered is parents who are actually friends with their children. 
um, that, that have remained a part of the faith. And he said, yes, of course, we need to be the parents. We need to make decisions. We need to set boundaries about phones, all these other things. But at the same time, we need to be their friend. Uh, they need to enjoy Play being home. Fortnite with your children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Look, I'd love to talk to you guys more. I love uh, just getting to hang out with you guys, hear from you guys, your, your experience in ministry. Appreciate you guys taking the time to, to share with us today. And I know others will be blessed by it. And I, I meant to say at the outset, Les Newsom will be our main speaker, Lord willing, at the High School Florida 2 conference. And that's the second week in, in July. Again, Lord willing with all this pandemic stuff out there. Um, but, but Les will be with us. So look, Les, John, thank you so much for coming on today. Pleasure, John. Thanks, John, for having us. Great to be with you. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh, come and feast without pay.